I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your hearts enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock, our redeemer, and our king. Amen. Who's in charge here? Who's in charge here? That's what the woman asked me in the middle of our trunk or treat just a few weeks ago. She had kids behind her in tow, and she looked right at me, and she said, Who's in charge here? Now, I myself was wearing a bathing suit, a shirt that said, I am Knuff. I had shaved, and I was wearing a platinum blonde wig. And she wanted to know who was in charge. Her question, I'll admit, was rather questionable. It was one of those moments where I could not really tell from her tone whether she wanted to know who was in charge because she was happy or because she was mad or somewhere in the middle. And because the tone of her question was questionable, and ostensibly I was in charge, I am the pastor after all, I thought about actually telling her the truth. Terry Urquhart is in charge. <laughs> But before I had a chance to say anything, maybe she saw the confusion on my face, the, the worry about how I would answer. She said before I had a chance to say anything, well, you tell whoever's in charge that this is amazing. And more churches should do more stuff like this more often. Who's in charge here? That's a good question. It's a question for Christ the King Sunday. Frankly, it's a question for every single Sunday. And today we try to answer Who's in charge? As I said earlier, this is the last day of the liturgical calendar. We are rounding out the year. And I'll be the first to admit it's a moment of confession. We, if you drive by our house, we already have all the Christmas lights hanging on the outside of our house. They've been up there since election day because it was 96 degrees in Roanoke on election day. It's a lot easier to put lights on your house when you're wearing shorts than when you have to wear gloves because it's so cold outside. And it's not just the outside lights that are up. All the inside decorations are up and have been up for a few weeks as well. Now, I usually like to blame the busyness of this season from Thanksgiving to Christmas for why we have our decorations up so early. Anything extra for a pastor between Thanksgiving and Christmas just doesn't happen. But that's not really the truth. You want to know why I already have all my Christmas lights up? Because I like it. <laughs> because I like, not only that, I love it. I love hanging up the Christmas lights. I love getting all the decorations out, looking at all those old decorations and remembering from whence they came, who gave them to me, what they embody, what they represent. I love driving on my street and being the first one to have Christmas lights. All the other houses are dark except for ours. I love that feeling. I love how the season makes me feel. We already have our Christmas tree up in the sanctuary. I know it looks weird. Don't worry, it'll look better by next week. But it's not Christmas yet. It's not even Advent. Today is Christ the King. 
While the world is already moving on from the turkey to the trimmings and the trappings of Christmas, today the church pauses the frenetic pace of this season and asks the question, who's really in charge here? Now most of the time when we talk about Jesus, even if we do it subtly, we talk about Jesus as a prophet or a priest. Jesus has some truth that he wants to drop on us week after week. That's what prophets do. Prophets tell us the truth even if we don't want to hear it. Jesus intercedes on our behalf, prays for us, makes a way to the Father when we couldn't get to God. That's what priests do. But Jesus actually holds three offices. Prophet, priest, and king. King Jesus. So why does the church take one Sunday, the last Sunday of the year, to remember that Jesus Christ is king? Does anybody know how long we've been celebrating Christ the King Sunday as, as, as the church writ large? Anybody know how long? I told you one year ago today. So if you can rewind a whole year to remember one bit of information you might remember. Again, this is why we do things over and over again in the church. Martha, you know kids, when you teach, you've got to tell them over and over and over again before they finally get it. Easter, we've been doing Easter since the very beginning of the church for 2,000 years. Christmas is not quite that old, but the church has observed Christmas for a very long time. Christ the King Sunday is the most recent addition to the liturgical calendar. It's almost as old as this church. Christ the King Sunday started in 1925. 1925. So why? Why did this Sunday start about 100 years ago? Well... It was about 100 years ago that Pope Pius XI looked out at a world that was teetering on the edge of war. Economic frivolity and uncertainty was rocking the world markets and the global consciousness was still sort of reeling from a pandemic. I mean, like that would ever happen again. You know, it's amazing how much can change over 100 years and how much stays the same. A world on the brink of war economic uncertainty, reeling from a pandemic. And so the Pope looked out at the world, a world just like ours, and said, you know what we need? We need to remember who's in charge. We need to remember that Jesus Christ is King. And so since 1925, it has been the Sunday that rounds out the liturgical calendar. Before we get to Advent, the whole global church community remembers that Jesus is King. Every time we refer to Jesus as Lord, anytime we refer to him as king, it's our way of expressing trust in the one who was, who is, and always will be in charge of the cosmos. Paul, in his letter to the church in Ephesus, says that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. His name is above every other name. Not just in this age, but the age to come. All things have been placed underneath his feet. He is the king. But is that how we think of Jesus? I mean, if we close our eyes and if we imagine Jesus, what do we see? Do we see someone sitting on a nice grassy knoll surrounded by people listening to him teach? Do we, do we picture him sitting at a table with friends, passing around a, a loaf of French bread and a glass of red wine? I mean, what do, we, what do we see when we picture Jesus? Do we imagine him as the king? Again, a teacher, if someone teaches us, we can take what a teacher says and we can let it go. We can listen to what a pastor or a priest says and we can agree or disagree, but not so with a king because a king is in charge. So 
So what's our king like? There came a man from Nazareth in Galilee named Jesus. He was poor, had absolutely no standing in the world, until he started preaching about this thing called the kingdom of God. He embodied it in what he did and how he acted, and it garnered him quite a following. I think sometimes it's hard for us to really wrap our heads around how popular and how quickly Jesus became popular. We were not as familiar with the circumstances of his time, but the people Israel had for centuries hoped for someone to come to inaugurate God's kingdom. They were waiting for someone who would come and change everything, waiting for someone to make a way where there was no way. They were hoping for the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. And yet after a brief stint of popularity for about three years, those in power took great offense at the kind of things that Jesus said and did. They were offended because most of his time he spent it talking about and acting against those in power because of what they were doing with their power. And the powers and principalities decided the only way to stop this particular rabble-rouser was the same way that the powers and principalities always stop rabble-rousing. They put him to death. And yet after his public torture and execution, Jesus' followers, those who had abandoned him and denied him at the very end, they began to wander around the Mediterranean with a strange bit of news. They said, this crucified Jesus, the one who hung on the arms of the cross, is the Lord and King of the cosmos. That's a fairly typical thing maybe to hear about in church on a Sunday morning. The crucified King rules. But when we hear that, what we should really think is, how in the world is this possible? How could this possibly be true? It shouldn't be possible. Because when those in power want something to end, they make it end. According to the terms of the world, we never should have heard about Jesus. He, like countless others, would just be one among many who were put to an end in the name of empire. It shouldn't be possible. But God does not deal in the realm of possibility. God instead delights in impossible possibility. Jesus' end has no end. It's only a new beginning, a beginning we call the gospel. It's strange, even, the cross. What happens as Jesus makes his way to the cross, it's filled with all these kingly elements. The scriptures say that when Jesus was marching to the place called Golgotha, they placed a purple robe on his shoulders. Again, purple, the color of royalty. They even offered him a crown, not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And when they hoisted him up for everyone to see, he sat on a throne, not a throne made of gold, but a throne that is the cross. And what is his first words from the cross? What is the first thing Jesus says as he ascends to this place of royalty, he says, God, forgive them. They have no idea what they're doing. That's our king. How bizarre. How utterly strange and weird. I mean, from the very beginning, Jesus predicted that he was going to be rejected. He kept bringing into his circle all sorts of people who had absolutely no business being in the kingdom business. I mean, fishermen for disciples? Tax collectors for apostles? What are we going to do next? Put lawyers on the finance committee? Who knows? There's no way to run a kingdom. 
Our king is foolish and risky. He spends all his time among the last, the least, the lost, the little, the dead. Wouldn't it be better to have a king who spends all of his time among the first, the best, the found, the big, the alive? I mean, what kind of king forgives the people who betray him? Is that good leadership? What about leaving 99 behind to find one who's lost? What about hosting a banquet and literally inviting everybody to come to it? What kind of kingdom is this? What kind of king is this? Paul says, God has given the power of grace to Jesus to work as he is raised from the dead and seated in the throne that is heaven. Jesus is the name above every name. All things are under his feet. He is in charge of all things and only Jesus can tell us who we are. That's why the church is here. To go through these habits that form us week after week, year after year, to remember and to believe that we are who God says that we are. That's why we do all sorts of weird things in the church, because we worship a weird king. Like, set aside time every week to worship and pray and read from the scriptures. We give away things like money and we use our talents for the betterment of other people. We live according to a different kingdom than the kingdoms of the world. We are citizens of Jesus' kingdom. Last Sunday, as is my habit, in between the worship services, I made my way to all the Sunday school classes. I, I love to do this. I don't have time on Sunday to, to lead a Sunday school class, so I get to pop in for two to five minutes at all of them. Admittedly, I do it just to make sure we're not committing any heresies here at Raleigh Court. You know, got to be careful. I also enjoy a little bit of holy eavesdropping sometimes when I'm in the class. Find out if I'm still going to have a job next Sunday, you know. Last Sunday, as I was making my way through, I, I walked into the youth Sunday school classroom and I entered in the middle of a conversation they were happening, having. A, a beautiful, remarkable, confounding conversation. They were talking about what it means to be faithful. What about people who say that they're Christian, who identify as Christian, but everything that they do is the opposite? What, they were asking, what do we do about the people who say they're a Christian, but everything about how they act is the opposite? What do we do with people who say they go to church, but they're the most judgmental people in the world? And what I really wanted to tell the, the, the youth was, that's every single Christian on the planet. <laughs> Irony is the fact that we're the church and Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged. And if there's anything we do really well, it's judgment. But I listened to them talk. I didn't even really have to say anything. They talked about the difference between talking the talk and walking the walk. Who gets to say they're a Christian versus who isn't? What are the marks of faith? It, it was a beautiful conversation to hear among the young people of our church. And all week I couldn't get the conversation out of my head. Even when I was at home with my family on Thanksgiving, I was still thinking about it because there was this little detail that stuck out to me and I can't get it out of my head, and it's this. They were asking about people who identify as being Christian. And you know what's strange about that? Almost no person in the New Testament identifies as being a Christian. Nobody. Nobody says, here I am, look at me, I'm a Christian. That, that is something that does not happen in the Bible. In fact, people are called Christians not because they identify as Christians, but because the world can't make sense of who they are and they apply the title on top of them. 
It's a public one. It's applied to those in the church by the world because they can't wrap their heads around it. <clears throat> you know, today, we take the practice of generosity as being rather ubiquitous, particularly at this time of year. You do good things for other people. But during the first century, it was inconceivable. No one did anything for anyone else unless it was your family member. You would not do a single thing for a stranger in the first century. It just did not happen. And then all of a sudden, this group of people started to show up, pop up, and people started to sell their possessions to help people who were poor. Others started opening up their homes and their tables to those who didn't have homes or food to eat. And the world saw this happening, and they said, what is up with these crazy people? Why are they doing this? Who are they? And they had to figure out how to identify them, and the world started calling them Christians. Why would people ever do such things as those? Only people who worship a king named Jesus. In other words, we can talk all we want about being Christians, but Christian isn't a noun. It's actually a verb. It's things we do and things that are done for us and to us. If our beliefs don't shape how we behave, then they're not really beliefs, at least not really. We don't walk around in the world with, with Christian on our name tag so that everyone knows to whom we belong. Instead, we live and move in the world in such a way that other people see how we behave and they know we're Christians because of it. You know that old song, they will know we are Christians by our love? I mean, there might not be anything more cliche than that, but cliches are cliches because they're true. Which means that people see Jesus through us. That's terrifying. People see our behavior and they see Jesus through us. That is hard work. Do you know how hard it is to act like Jesus? Especially this time of year. The world will know who Jesus is through us. That is a tremendous responsibility. It means living according to mercy rather than judgment, offering grace instead of disgrace, hope instead of sorrow. But if we're ever able to do it, it's not because we have the power within us to do it. We only can because Jesus empowers us to live that way, just as George was saying in the children's message. Jesus is the power, is the battery bank for our ability to live a faithful life. Because Jesus even though he shouldn't, gives us mercy and grace and hope. We have reason, in short, to rejoice because we know the king. This is our day that is the great nevertheless to the craziness of the world. Despite the rise of violence and judgment and hatred and harm, today we say we know who's in charge and his kingdom is not from this world. It is different. Because our king rules from the arms of the cross. The cross where he drew unto and into himself all of the wickedness and the pain and the sorrow the world ever had to offer. And he vanquished it forever. On Christ the King Sunday we remember that we belong to Jesus. Which means no matter how good we are or bad we are, we are loved. That's why I had Larry start the service with important words. Words that we often sing on a day like today. 
Rejoice, the Lord is King, your Lord and King adore. Mortals, give thanks and sing and triumph evermore. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice, rejoice again, I say, rejoice. We can rejoice because we know the King. I offer this to you in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.